But I also want to say it's never too late. So if you're 40, 45, 50, 55, 60 and older, it's never too late to do some of this testing. I know it may sound like a huge project, but the truth is this comes down to really small baby steps that accumulate and aggregate over time and help you become more metabolically healthy and metabolically flexible. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder, and I'm going to help you rock your hormones and feel great in your body so that you can reclaim more energy, vitality, and joy and become the CEO of your health. Let's jump on in. Hey, one more thing. Did you know that one of the biggest nutrient deficiencies that I see in people, especially women, is a magnesium deficiency? It's because we burn through the super mineral so quickly. Now, this powerful mineral packs a massive punch because magnesium is involved in over 600 reactions in the body. Now, it is your best friend if you need more energy, better sleep, a faster metabolism, improved digestion, and not to mention happier periods. And you can quickly replenish your magnesium levels with my Essentially Whole Magnesium Restore Supplement made with my favorite form of magnesium, magnesium glycinate. Use promo code PODCAST and get 10% off your entire order at drmarisa.com slash magnesium. Now I'll have the link in the show notes for this episode to make it easy. Go and try it out today. In December 2020, I was induced and gave birth to my son Kingston at 38 weeks, almost 39 weeks, due to complications with progressive signs of preeclampsia. Now I had all three signs of preeclampsia, which are high blood pressure, excess protein in the urine, and decreased levels of platelets in the blood, known as thrombocytopenia. And it was the thrombocytopenia which triggered the need for me to get induced early. And the reason why I'm sharing this with you today is based on an important truth. Pregnancy is the ultimate stress test on a woman's body, and at 41 years old, I didn't pass. Having preeclampsia is an indicator for heart disease later in life, and it's something I'm taking very seriously. It took over a year for my blood pressure to fully normalize after having Kingston. It was 130 over 80 for a long time, but I got it back down to 104 over 66, which was what it was before I was pregnant, and honestly, most of my pregnancy. And I guess it should come to no surprise. Like many of us, I have heart disease on both sides of my family, especially the Mexican side of my family. But what I didn't know until recently was how prevalent heart disease is in women. Because like many people, even as a practitioner, I still believe the narrative that heart disease was predominantly a male-focused disease. But for most of the past century, more women than men have died from cardiovascular disease, meaning heart attacks and stroke. Yet we continue to believe that it's considered primarily a problem for men. Half of the women in developed countries will die of mostly preventable heart disease and stroke. This is one of several shocking statistics that Dr. Sarah Gottfried encountered while researching her latest publication, Women, Diet, Cardiometabolic Health, and Functional Medicine, in which she challenges the dogma that women are a lesser risk of cardiometabolic disease than men. And that's why I am so excited to have her join me today on the podcast. When I saw the research paper come out earlier this year, I immediately reached out to her and asked if she would bless me with another interview because her last interview was fire. It was about a year ago with the launch of her latest book, Women, Food, and Hormones. Now, if there's someone that you love that is concerned with risk factors around cardiovascular disease, 
then you are exactly where you need to be. Now, before I bring on this revolutionary doctor in the field of women's health, I want to just quickly sing her praises. Dr. Sarah Gottfried is a board-certified physician who graduated from Harvard and MIT. She practices evidence-based integrative precision and functional medicine. She's a clinical assistant professor at the Department of Integrative Medicine and Nutritional Sciences at Thomas Jefferson University and the director of precision medicine at Marcus Institute for Integrative Health. She is a four-time New York Times bestselling author, and her books are phenomenal. And you can learn more at sarahgodfriedmd.com. Let's welcome her to the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast. Once again, Dr. Sarah Godfrey, how are you doing today? I've never been better. I'm so happy to be with you. Mm. Ooh, we are talking about your newest paper, probably groundbreaking paper. If you all haven't read it yet, we're going to make sure to link to that as well. But it's on women's diet, functional medicine, and cardiovascular health. And you know the ins and outs of what we need to be paying attention to, because there's some alarming stats in there. There's a lot that you've taken away and gleaned. And I know that you really want a lot of us to know what we should be looking out for. But before we get into all of that, I'd love for you to share kind of your personal reason for wanting to really dive into this groundbreaking research? There's a lot of reasons. I would say, first of all, I had borderline gestational diabetes when I was pregnant. And I remember, you probably remember this too, Maritza, where you drink that glucose soda, you know, it's terrible, that soda, and then they draw your blood an hour later. And my level was borderline. So I was right at 134, 135 is the cutoff. And I realized, you know, my doctor said to me, don't drink juice. Like that was her primary advice. Pregnancy is a stress test. So not every woman experiences pregnancy, but it's a really important stress test. A lot of us fail, or in my case, I borderline failed it. And it tells us about some of our vulnerabilities you know, maybe you have blood pressure that creeps up or like me, you did. Yeah. I so did. we should talk I, about I, that. Yeah. I, I wanted to, I'm so glad that this is where we're starting because yes. I'm so happy to be having this conversation <laughs> because I tell women all the time and they look at me so shocked. I'm like, it's the ultimate stress test. It, it can show predictors for what's to come in our future if we don't take, you know, mindful precautions. Moving out. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And conventional physicians are not going to hold it that way. So I had this experience of borderline blood sugar, and then not a big surprise, a few years later, I found that my fasting blood sugar was in the pre-diabetes range. I started to wear a continuous glucose monitor and found that you know, I was spiking to foods that I thought were healthy, things like potatoes and fruits and sweet potatoes, grains of almost any type. And so you too, yeah. So I had this vulnerability that I think is largely silent in terms of us knowing about it. And it's certainly silent in terms of conventional medicine looking for it. So women are, are more vulnerable than men. I take care of both men and women, but I wrote this paper because we know that women have some different vulnerabilities. We've got higher rates of trauma, especially sexual trauma. We've got more damage to our blood vessels at lower glucoses. So the threshold in women is more like 110, whereas for men, the threshold for vascular damage is more like 126 milligrams per deciliter for fasting glucose. 
And so we start to show problems, you know, in a different way. So there's the vulnerability. And then this is maybe a little more subtle. I'm going to get into more of a mystical state here. You lose your aliveness if you're not paying attention to cardiometabolic health. So while some of these changes are really subtle, things like your blood pressure is starting to creep up or your blood sugar is starting to creep up, or maybe your lipids starting to change, your cholesterol, your triglycerides, your low-density lipoproteins. So a lot of those things are silent and they can occur for a few decades before you get a diagnosis of something like hypertension or even a heart attack. So there's this silence that occurs in terms of symptoms related to some of these problems. And yet you wanna intervene as early as possible. So the more that you can pay attention to these things as you do, as I started to when I was in my thirties, the better off you are in terms of trying to correct them. So this aliveness piece I think is really essential because your cardiometabolic health determines your aliveness. It determines your body's ability to utilize glucose as fuel, your ability to burn fat as fuel, your ability to switch back and forth between glucose and fat. It determines the way that your cells function in terms of mitochondria, oxidative stress, all the things that you talk about in your podcast. I've been listening uh, to some of your latest ones. And so that aliveness, there's a cost to losing that aliveness. You can't show up as the mother that you may want to be. You can't show up with your mission, vision, and values for your life. You know, you just feel tired. It makes you want to sit on the couch and watch Netflix, right? And so, so that's why I care about it. And what I found with all of my books and with all of my work is that the ways that my body is, is vulnerable have directed me toward how to then come up with solutions, natural solutions that I can then provide service around. That's what really brought me to this work about cardiometabolic health in women. Mm, that's so powerful. I mean, I think some big, some big kind of defining, you know, moments in this conversation was one, pregnancy being a stress test and things that we should be looking out for and knowing that we may not be hearing the answers or the solutions that we're expecting from our, our practitioners, our OBGYNs, for instance, you know, stop drinking juice. Right. <laughs> <It's>, you know. <laughs> oh. What? <laughs> Where? Where's our? Can't we have a conversation about fast? You know, fasting glucose and what the optimal range is versus the so-called normal range, which was really defined in men. Yes. So, well, that's Absolutely. that's where we come in. That's, yeah. There's a gap that we have to address. Mm-hmm. There's a yeah. There's a dismissal. I was told that I was going to fail the test. Guaranteed. That was just how it was going to be. Forty-one-year-old woman coming in. I'm just going to fail. And it was really fascinating. It's interesting too, because, you know, we may see women and we may often see women on the borderline of gestational diabetes or even gestational diabetes, but then we don't have that conversation of what could be the result later on down the line. It's like, oh, this happened in in a vacuum here, but don't worry about it out there. You know, just don't drink juice. (laughs) And so, you know. And you just had a you had a podcast recently where you talked about some of the 10 most common reasons why your blood sugar is disrupted. And I I think when I was 35 and I did that test, I think I had like nine out of 10. 
And yet it's not the way that mainstream medicine thinks. They don't think in terms of the upstream causes of things like problems with your cardiometabolic health or with your glucose or your blood pressure, et cetera. And yet it, that's the way it should be. You know, we've got to de-siloize. We've got to think about how is your system working and how do we detect some of these early changes? So we've got this opportunity with pregnancy, but I also don't want to leave out the people who don't get pregnant because we can use these tests in people, you know, in the non-pregnant state too. And well, I know in another part of our, just what you had just said is like, obviously the sooner the better. I remember finally having an aha moment a couple of years back that my I was pretty much on a blood sugar roller coaster in my 20s. And I, I thought it was cortisol. I thought it was trauma. I thought it was me being in survival mode. And I didn't, you know, and, and obviously I was eating sugar to manage a lot of those other things. But I, when I looked back, I was like, oh my gosh, I think I was literally just spiking and crashing and spiking and crashing all day, every day. And it didn't really hit me until 30. Is there is there a defining age where we really should be looking at this with a fine tooth comb before we move deeper into our decades? Would it be 20s? Would it be 30s? Like where, I know there's never a point of no return, but do you recommend, is it our 30s that we really have that aha moment? I would say the 30s are really an important time. I'm glad you raised this point about your 20s because my next book is about the physical manifestations of trauma and the way that the, you know, not just our mental health is affected, but the psychoimmunoneuroendocrine system, including insulin, including cortisol. And we know, for instance, I'll give you one of the statistics. We know, for instance, that if you look at hospitalizations for heart attack, we know that men are getting better. So men are getting detected sooner in terms of the development of heart attack. They actually survive pretty well after having a heart attack. And the group that's actually not doing well is women that are from the age of 35 to 54. So we're seeing increased hospitalizations in those women. So I would say if I'm forced to pick an age, I would say somewhere between 30 and 35. That's where you want to do a lot of these baseline tests. Now, going back to the trauma connection, because I think that's so important, there is so much data now showing that trauma is related to metabolic health, that trauma is a risk factor for the development of diabetes. I haven't seen data on trauma and gestational diabetes, but I imagine, you know, that's, that's one of the risks. So I think trauma is such an important piece to think about here. And for me, most of my trauma exposure was before 35. It was in childhood. I had parents that were divorced. I had a few other issues in my family of origin. Then I went through medical training, which, you know, you experienced this too, Marisa, where I heard Gabor Mate describe it in this way. Medicine is like a cult where you get assigned a uniform, you know, scrubs and a white jacket. You get cut off from your friends and family. You're like forced to be in the system all the time. And then you're sleep deprived. So authoritarian system, very toxic system and quite traumatizing. So I imagine that I probably had glucose problems that dated back to my teenage years and It was part of the driver of, as you described, the blood sugar roller coaster 
where I was trying to soothe myself and I would soothe myself with carbohydrates. And I know it would jack up my blood sugar and lead to those spikes and crashes, spikes and crashes. The spikiness is really what drives inflammation and causes so many problems downstream in the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the culmination of the spikiness over time yes. that is compounding, right? And it, we, one or two occasionally, and, and you've spoken to, you know, we start to see vascular damage at, you know, 110 milligrams per deciliter for women. And then you said 126 milligrams per deciliter. But when we look at the you know, modern medicine and where their levels are at, it's 140 you're good to go. Um, and when we think about even at 110, a lot of people would consider that optimal. You know, that, that, that if you're spiking around 110, oh, no concern there. We really have to shift the way that we think about blood sugar variability in what we're eating on a, on a day-to-day basis. I can guarantee that my blood sugar was way above 110 milligrams per deciliter most days of the week back in my 20s because I was, I was absolutely self-soothing the same way. And when I was feeling that crash at two o'clock in the afternoon, I just found myself just trying to get through the rest of the day. You know, and I think that's a lot of women, a lot of people is we're just trying to, again, like you said, on that mystic level of that deficiency of feeling the life force that you're just trying to supplement to get to the end, you know, to get through that lagging part of your afternoon. Right. And it leads to drinking coffee to try to make it through some of those lulls that you have, which are often driven by blood sugar. It's why we then reach for a glass of wine at the end of the day to try to come down from all of that stress. And I just want to distinguish, you know, there's a few different ways to talk about blood sugar. There's fasting glucose, Mm -hmm. which is one of the criteria for the diagnosis of prediabetes and diabetes. The 110 that I'm referring to in women is fasting glucose. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That that was a little bit, yeah, let's differentiate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, let's differentiate because, I mean, the, the other issue that I think you're speaking to is the excursion. So how much yes. how much your blood sugar changes in response the variability. to food, yes. the variability, the standard deviation. What I really prefer with my patients is a mean glucose that's less than 100 with a standard deviation that's less than 15. Mm-hmm. And in women, sometimes I'll try to get that even tighter, especially for those that are trying to address fat loss and are trying to reverse prediabetes. Yeah, it's important to kind of distinguish those two. When you wear a continuous glucose monitor, it all kind of gets you know, managed together. Yes. (laughs) Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh my gosh. Because I also do know, um, Dr. Sarah Godfrey, that when we do see these bigger spikes, there's an inflammatory response as well. Very micro, but it's something that we should be mindful of. Um, And that is very different than you going to the doctor eight o'clock in the morning after an eight plus hour fast, and you're seeing levels above 100 milligrams per deciliter. You're saying 110 milligrams per deciliter is where we really know that we've got vascular damage. Right. And we know that we've got insulin resistance way oh, before at that, that point. Right? Oh yeah. Right. Way, way before. <laughs> yeah. So starting, I mean, you and I have the same optimal range. I like for my patients to be between about 70 and 85 milligrams per deciliter with the fasting glucose. Once you get to above 85, 90, that's where you start to see more insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. And fasting glucose is a very late part of the process. You know, we can see much earlier changes with insulin I'm going to get a little ahead of myself here. So 
I would love to speak into, there's a couple, another thing I wanted to dissect, you know, you talked about how the, the cutting edge technologies and the way that we are treating um, cardiovascular disease in the hospital setting, in the medical setting, that it actually is really serving men. And the demographic of women that not necessarily serving as well is in a demographic that I think women just heard, we're just like, oh, that seems like really young demographic to consider. I believe you said 35 to 50 is was the demographic 54. where we're 54 yes. where we're kind of failing women can I want to go back to that because not only is that kind of alarming demographic for any woman to be thinking oh my gosh like are we seeing cardiovascular incidents more commonly in this particular demographic and why is it that we are that women are in the hospital longer that we're not making the type of progression and you know positive outcomes in women of this demographic yeah, it's such a good question. And I would say we've got a lot of theories and some proof about why there's such a big sex difference, so biological difference, but there's also some gender differences. Oh, for sure. So gender, socially constructed. Yes. But in terms of biological differences, I think the main thing is that we're feeling women of all ages, <laughs> but <Yes>. certainly <laughs> that group, 35 to 54, part of it is that the biology of cardiometabolic disease in women is different than it is in men. And there's- What, you mean you're telling me that we're not small men? <laughs> oh, okay. I know. <laughs> what a shocker. Yeah. I mean, it, that, was, that was the assumption of the medical system for uh, decades, centuries, until we really started to focus on gender and sex differences in research. So a lot of the research that was done looking at the effect of statins and other interventions for cardiovascular disease was defined in men. And then, you know, the randomized trials were done by pharmaceutical companies. Then once a new drug like a statin was approved by the FDA, it then went into guidelines all based on data in men. Mm -hmm. And so there's all of these biological differences, things like women have smaller coronary arteries in general than men do. We don't have you know, the classic thing with men is that if we just take a heart attack as an example, men get this crushing substernal chest pain, like an elephant is sitting on their chest, severe, sudden pain in the region of their heart right below their chest bone that radiates to their left arm. So that's the classic in men because they have obstruction. They've got kind of this deposition in their coronary arteries, and then they get a clot on top of it, and then they're obstructed, and that leads to pain, and a heart attack. Women don't get that. So they sometimes get that, but they're more likely to have microvascular problems in their coronary arteries. And so it's harder to detect it, both based on symptoms and also based on testing. So the classic thing, if you just talk about heart attack for a moment, is a guy will show up at the emergency room. They'll do some testing, like some blood testing to look for enzymes, and then they'll maybe do an angiography to see what's going on in the coronary arteries. And angiography does not have the same sensitivity and specificity in women compared to men, because women are more likely not to obstruct, but to erode. And so their symptoms are more subtle. Instead of that crushing substernal chest pain, they get nausea, neck pain, back pain. I have one patient who fainted, she had syncope, they get shortness of breath. 
they get diaphoresis, like sweating and just a sense of doom. So the symptoms in women are much more subtle. They're more nonspecific. And it leads to a lot of gender differences too, because there was a, a study a few years ago from Florida showing that if you look at men and women showing up at an emergency room with a heart attack, the women who saw a female physician had two to three times better survival than if they saw a male physician. And so you might be thinking, okay, well, what about the guys? If they saw a female doc versus a male doc, survival was the same. So there are gender differences. There's these assumptions about what women look like when they're having a heart attack, what sort of symptoms can lead up to a heart attack, and then the way that they're managed is different. So there's biological differences and there's gender differences that lead to that problem of increased hospitalization for acute myocardial infarction in women in that age group, 35 to 54. Because it, it subjectively, as we are giving symptoms when we show up, gosh, it's so hard because I'm sure that women are even confused about what they're dealing with. Is, is there a better mechanism of us describing or what can we do moving forward in terms of even being identified a little bit sooner and easier? Or we're still figuring that out? Well, I would say the thing that has to change is the, the system. Yeah. So yeah. I think that has to change first. Like I wouldn't yes. want to put, I wouldn't want oh, to- Oh, not run. on us. More so yeah. like what, what can a doctor recognize? Like yes. how can we, yeah. So in terms of changing the system, we have to educate doctors about this. So we have to change the way that the medical education is performed. We have to make sure guideline-based care is separated by sex. We have to do more research in women. You know, still up until the 1990s, most of the research was done in men. And as we described, applied to women. So we, we need more funding for understanding how to make these diagnoses more accurate in women. So I would say the system has to change. I think we have to focus on a more functional and integrative approach to diagnosing women earlier, men too, but women, since we continue to die of this, it's the number one killer in both men and women. A woman dies every 80 seconds of cardiovascular disease. So that's, to me, that's just totally unacceptable. And then we also, I would say, Women need to trust their sense of what is happening in their body. I talk to a lot of women who have a sense of doom or a sense that something's not right. Mm. They go to the emergency room, they get reassured or dismissed and, you know, okay, you've got this neck pain. Everything looks to be fine. I think you're okay to go home. If you have a sense that something's wrong, really listen to that. Like, listen to it. Ask for a second opinion. So I wouldn't want to put the onus on women to have to correct this. We've got to correct it within the system. But I would also say trust your instincts. Yeah, it, it is that fine balance. You know, I've had so many conversations around the advocacy of ourselves. And when you're in that moment, things are moving so fast. I get what, you know, and we've normalized dismissal a lot. And and yeah, yeah we got to really stop hard. doing that. We got to start doing that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know, how, I know how hard that can be. I mean, I've been in those scenarios too, where I'm just like, oh my gosh, how am I even losing my voice right now? I talk about this all the time and then here I am in this moment and I feel like I'm, I'm not able to speak up. And so I definitely don't want to put so the onus on. On women. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's talk about this for a moment mm -hmm. because I think this is a really juicy area. And I would even call that patriarchal stress disorder, right? Yeah. Where 
when we're told by an authoritarian person that we're normal, like, don't worry about it. You're just, uh, maybe you're too stressed. We have to really get clear about our yeses and our noes. So if there's a sense that something more serious is going on, I really think it's important to listen to that. You know, I realize that a lot of the additional testing that we're talking about, you know, functional testing, advanced lipid profiles, continuous glucose monitoring, there's a cost to those things. Yes. And so a, a real cost, a physical cost, a, a worthwhile cost. cost, but a cost none the same. That's right. And so there's inequities in terms of who has access to that. Yes. But we all have access to strengthening our voice and understanding the way that the system of patriarchy is set up to dismiss women, including their symptoms of cardiometabolic dysfunction. And we can't stand up for that. We can't allow that anymore. Well, I think even with the myth that I know that so many women, we've been told for decades that cardiovascular disease is a, is a more of a male disease than it is a female disease. It's not even something that should really be on your radar until well after menopause. Even dispelling that myth literally here today and having that conversation of like, this needs, this needs to be more of an awareness. You know, we should be asking for biomarkers, you know, early in. And I know you did mention advanced testing and, and gosh, I hope one day that that just becomes a part of the normal annual exam where we do more advanced cardiometabolic testing that we are able to just go in and get a prescription for a continuous glucose monitor. It doesn't cost us $400 to sign up to get one. And that we're looking at fasting insulin and, you know, hemoglobin A1C way earlier than it's supposed to be like really looked at. I think those are all the ways in which we, we can start getting a better understanding, but at least there being an awareness. You know, I um, come from a family, I'm a half Mexican. And so all my uncles, my grandfather, they've all had um, bypasses, quadruple, triple bypass. And uh, my mom is just kind of wondering when the shoe's going to drop for her. Not wondering. I'm obviously, it's on her radar. My mom is doing a lot of things. She works with me. So I'm on Aww. top of it. Um, but it's just something that we're signaled up. And so was it, a? I mean, it was a little bit surprising when I got preeclampsia or was heading towards preeclampsia towards the end of my 38th week of having my son. Yes. And, but then I thought, oh, huh, you know, here we are, I'm in this stress bubble and what's shooting up for me is a, a cardiovascular marker where, you know, I had to get induced yeah. early. So I'm so glad you raised this and thank you for sharing about the preeclampsia. So I'd love to dive deep into this for a moment because you're right. I mean, the when we ask women, what's the leading cause of death? In 2009, somewhere around 65% of them said it was cardiovascular disease. In 2019, when we asked again, it was around 44% could name cardiovascular disease. So our awareness is actually declining. And that's why we need you and your amazing podcast to be broadcasting and myth-busting the way that we should be approaching these things. And so, you know, there's the traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease, things like high blood pressure, having a family history, especially premature heart disease. We've got a few, I would say, kind of first or second generation biomarkers that are used to risk stratify, things like triglycerides and fasting glucose and, and also your LDL, your HDL, total cholesterol, you know, we're now at a point, I would say we've been at a point for 20, 25 years where 
we've got much more advanced biomarkers that we should be testing. And when we look at something like preeclampsia, there are so many non-traditional risk factors that exist only in women that we want to be paying attention to. So you had the experience of preeclampsia at 38 weeks. I had the experience of borderline gestational diabetes. There's all these other non-traditional risk factors that pregnancy can unmask, including not just preeclampsia, which is where you spill some protein in your urine together with high blood pressure, but pregnancy-induced hypertension. Mm-hmm. Having a small for gestational age baby, less than 2,500 grams at term, having preterm labor and delivery, that can be a sign of vascular dysfunction in the placenta and in the uterus. If we drill down with preeclampsia, we know that, and I don't want to scare you because no, I, I think no, you probably know this, these data. <laughs> yes. I just had a patient with preeclampsia who was in her 40s and she had some abnormal lipids. And I was saying, you know, did anyone talk to you when you were diagnosed with preeclampsia about how you need to be risk stratified in a different way and you need to be tracked at a deeper level to see if there's some of these early signs, things like glucose dysfunction that could contribute to your later risk because with preeclampsia, you've got double the risk of heart disease, stroke. Mm-hmm. You've got a fourfold increased risk of developing hypertension, even if your blood pressure was normal when you were postpartum. And so we want to be thinking about these things because I used to also think that I didn't have to worry about cardiovascular disease in myself or my patients until after about 55. I was taught that's when women catch up to men. Yeah. But that's not what the latest data is showing. No, no, no. We're saying that right now, that is not the time that we should be thinking about this. That's right. So I always do, I do advanced lipid testing starting around age 40, sooner if there's any sort of atypical or typical risk factor. And we can talk about, you know, what's on that list. I like to do a coronary artery calcium score in everyone, men and women by age 45, sooner if there's some family history. I like to do continuous glucose monitoring. I mean, I feel like in some ways I won't shut up about it. I think it's so important. And so such a crucial biomarker in terms of personalizing diet and really helping you get back on the right track with cardiometabolic health. So yeah, we've got to be thinking about these things so that we can turn them around. So when you know that you had preeclampsia, when you know that you had gestational diabetes, that is a great opportunity to say, okay, I'm not going to wait until 55. I'm going to start now with turning the ship around. Absolutely. And and having such a big why to do so. You know, you've got a family, you know, you want to be a strong, strong mama moving in. But yeah, I mean, you want to show up, you want to have that aliveness. Um, and so the sooner we can, I would love to dive into the more advanced type of cardiovascular markers. We talked about the other ones, um, but I'd love to, I think women just need to hear it not only for themselves, but also from their partner. Uh, my husband was having some, we just couldn't identify, we, we still weren't sure, but he was having some weird diffuse pain. And so we ran him in for every type of inflammatory test and, and advanced lipid test that we could get our hands on. And so when he went to the cardiologist, you know, it was the same rigmarole and we had to go out to a functional doctor to go and get that testing. Right. Well, so in terms of advanced testing, what I do in pretty much all of my patients, which ranges from, you know, women in their twenties and thirties to professional athletes, I take care of an NBA team to executives. 
I run certain tests on all of them. And that includes with advanced lipid testing, I look at NMR fractionation. So that means we're looking not just at the, you know, the first generation cholesterol test was total cholesterol. And then it evolved into LDL, HDL, triglycerides, and total cholesterol. That still is not very informative because we're learning that, you know, the way that we used to think about HDL has really changed. It matters much more your HDL function and not the, the number itself. So now we're in a place where we can do testing looking at fractionation. So we can take the LDL as an example, and we can see, do you have the small dense LDL that can really cause problems in, in coronary arteries and other vessels, or do you have the large fluffy LDL? So you can fractionate, and you can do that with pretty much all classes of lipids, HDL, VLDL. And then as you described with your husband, I like to do an inflammatory panel. So a lot of people will get a high sensitivity C-reactive protein. I feel like that's just the tip of the iceberg. So I look at a lot of different things, myeloperoxidase, oxidized LDL. I like to look at microalbumin. You know, if someone seems to have some, if they screen positive for cardiometabolic disease, I'm gonna open that up more and I'm gonna do some additional testing. I tend to run my tests through Cleveland Heart Lab. So I just really trust their lab. I've been using it for decades. And you can now get your blood drawn through Quest. I don't have any financial affiliation with this group. So I like to do those tests. I also like to look at a few other markers. Like I like to do a metabolic risk score, including an insulin resistance score so that people can track over time. I think that's a really intuitive measure. So that's looking at fasting insulin, fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C. For some of my patients, especially my professional athletes, I'll look at things like adiponectin and some of the other hormones related to the way that you utilize glucose. I like to look at lipo little a, lipoprotein little a, because that's another cause of silent heart disease. And it's not often tested. And yet it's something that's quite amenable to change with food and with supplements, things like Arona Berry. That's one of those tests that if you find, for instance, in a patient in their 20s or 30s, that they have a high lipo little a, you can really turn that ship around. You can get them started on a smoothie with Arona Berry. You can get them started on omega-3s and you can really see an impact. You know, some patients have to go on and, and take some additional supplements like niacin, but that can really make a difference. So that's some of the advanced lipid testing that I do. I'm probably leaving a few out. And then I practice functional medicine. So I, of course, I'm looking at nutritional testing too. So I'm looking at the levels of micronutrients, vitamins, minerals. I'm looking at heavy metals, heavy metal exposure, because we know that that maps to cardiovascular risk. And once again, that women are more vulnerable. So we know that women tend to have more risk associated with the same mercury exposure. We certainly know that there's greater risk to our fetus when we're pregnant with mercury exposure, but it extends to the cardiovascular system as well. So that's an example of some of the testing I do. And then I, I combine it with wearables. So I think wearables can be so helpful looking at things like heart rate variability, the way that you dance with stress. I also use a a watch that tells me a composite metric that I really like called the body battery. 
So it's a combination of sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, together with HRV, resting heart rate, a few other markers. And that's the Garmin. Is that correct? Is that Garmin? This one's the Garmin. I, you know, I, I don't have a particular association with one wearable versus another. I just like, I like the HRV data from the Aura. You got the Aura ring on. Yep. You yeah. The- <laughs> and the Garmin, you know, I've, I like Whoop. I like Garmin. I like it a little better than the Apple Watch in terms of the HRV data seems to be a little bit more accurate, but I also sometimes I'll use a strap in the morning so that I can get kind of on-demand HRV and not just what happens at night. So those are a few examples. And then for most of my patients, I'm also doing stool tests. I'm looking at inflammatory tone because we know that you know if someone's got high inflammatory tone, it's probably coming from the gut. At least we assume the gut until proven otherwise. And then I look at hormones. Oh, of course, we've got to talk about it. Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's the Maritza and, and Sarah show. So it's, you know, hormones are going to be part of this. Yeah, so looking at cortisol, I do a lot of dried urine testing. I like to look at cortisol awakening response. I, list, I like to look at diurnal cortisol, metabolized cortisol. I like to look at the levels and the balance of estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone in both men and women. And then I look at estrogen metabolites. I look at genetics. I think genetics are a really important part of this story. Certainly sounds like that's maybe part of your story. Yeah. What have you learned in terms of genetic risk in your family? So when we, I ran a full genetic panel, the, the thing that highlighted the most actually was my propensity for type 2 diabetes. So I have... Uh, uncle, I have a I have a 16 year old cousin who's got type two diabetes. Aunts and across the board, my sister is definitely headed there there in that direction. And so, a lot of diabetes, a lot of cardiovascular disease. But yeah, my markers really show diabetes as a as a marker as a concern more than anything. But then genetically, I see especially on the the Latin side, especially in the men, like and women too, but more in the men than we have seen in women. Um, you know, all of my my grandfather and my uncles had a cardiovascular event in their 50s. And my mom is going to be, she's, she's past those years. And so <laughs> we won't say exactly how old she is. Um, no, but no yeah, need. <laughs> no need, <laughs> but still doing really great. And so, but yeah, that's what, but that's really the, the, the biggest genetic marker that came up for me. So I've been very mindful. It's so helpful to know that because... As you know, genetics are a game of probability. So it doesn't mean that you're going to develop type 2 diabetes. It just means you've got a vulnerability that you have to work around. And so your epigenetics and your environment become so important. And to me, it's a sacred opportunity to really show up with your greatest aliveness and to know, okay, one of the ways that my aliveness can be diminished is with the way that my cells process glucose and process insulin. The genetics are complicated when it comes to glucose and insulin. You know, there's there's hundreds and hundreds of genes, there's gene-gene interactions. So it's it's complicated, but you can also rank order a lot of the, the SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms that put you at increased risk. But this is where I think having more comprehensive data makes such a huge difference. You know, I've been wearing a CGM for about four years and we know, I just published a paper in the British Medical Journal about the use of continuous glucose monitors in non-diabetics and how 
we know that you can diagnose about 15% more people with prediabetes when you use a CGM compared to the gold standard of, you know, fasting glucose. and Once a year. <laughs> once a year. Yep. Exactly. That's incredible. I love that because we need more evidence to show that these are such a critical element of, of monitoring our health, especially if we're not diabetic yet. That's right. I mean, why do you have to wait for why a diagnosis of diabetes? Like or I, pre-diabetes. I don't want to wait around for that. I, I want, I mean, we know I'm going to put my bioengineering hat on here for a moment. We know that once the system gets disrupted and starts to shift from health to prediabetes or any other predisease to disease, the sooner that we intervene, the better that system returns to homeostasis. So the fact that you found out, you know, at such an early age and started wearing a continuous glucose monitor and started to work around some of those challenges that you inherited, that can make all the difference. It makes and I want all people to have hope. Yes. I want yeah, people well, to have hope. And I think it, it is. It's, I mean, and get, I know we're talking about precision medicine here and functional medicine, but there's a lot of things that we can do with the wearables to get a great sense of things. And kind of probably my biggest aha moment was I, I can be in good, have great metabolic flexibility. I can, you know, I can really go back and forth and vacillate, but I can also tip over back into a place of, of deregulation way easier than I, I would like to be able to. And whether that's genetics or how I was living my life in my 20s or you know, a multitude of factors that are playing a role, the hope is, is that, okay, I know how to do this. I know how to stay there. I know how to really feel amazing. But then also it gives me parameters. It kind of gives me, I guess, like, I think like the little, the little bumper cars of like where I can land, you know, and if I go out of that. But what's really fascinating to me is if I do step into a place where my fasting blood sugar is 83 in, a, in the morning, which it to me is like, uh-oh, what, you know, what happened the last couple of days? It takes about three to four days to get it back to that sexy number of 72. And as that really speaks into like the earlier that we can intervene, the easier it is for our body to get back. If we go too far in that direction and everyone's just like, wait and see, wait and see, wait and see, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder. I was having a conversation with a girl at a, a little event and she had polycystic ovarian syndrome and her doctor said, well, the only, I'm not even going to treat you really until you want to get pregnant, oh. which is just makes oh. me throw up yes. in my mouth. Um, but put her on metformin, no recommend, didn't even tell her to stop drinking juice. <laughs> just put her on metformin um, and wasn't really monitoring it. It was just a mess. And, and she was like, can I, you know, I, can I still eat cereal? And I was like, mm. you know, and so it, we, I really had to like start dissecting, you know, what it looks like when we have that level of insulin resistance and how we're at a tipping point at that, at that point. When we've got great metabolic flexibility, I don't want anyone eating cereal, but you know, we, we have a little bit of wiggle room there, but when we're already at that level of, of insulin resistance, you know, even, even talk about in the book, you've talked about it on Instagram where even fruit, really healthy fruit could be spiking your blood sugar, could be creating an inflammatory response, even though for maybe other people, that isn't the case. Exactly right. I mean, so many of us are taught that the Mediterranean diet is the healthiest diet. It's the most proven. It's got the most evidence behind it. It helps with glucose levels. But the problem is we have to individualize. Mm -hmm. So we know, I like how you brought up this wiggle room point because 
when I was in my 30s and well into my 40s, the Mediterranean diet was spiking my glucose like crazy. Those grains, the fruits, not the vegetables, but some of the starchy vegetables, certainly like pumpkin and even butternut squash, sweet potatoes. So those things were spiking me. I had to do this low carb version. I had to really calibrate my carbs, find my carb limit, combine it with a lot of fiber, you know, to really focus on the non-starchy vegetables first on my plate, combine it with healthy oils and with healthy protein. Like that's really what worked for me. And what I found over time is that even though I couldn't eat an apple without spiking my glucose up to about 150, 160, or a banana, or even if I had a cup of berries, it would do that. So a lot of it is dependent on dose, but it's also dependent on your stress levels, your history of trauma. There's so many factors that go into your glucose utilization. Estrogen also plays a role, which we should talk about. You know, what I found over time is that I now carb cycle, meaning that when I'm in ketosis for a few days, I can then up my carbs so I can tolerate more carbs. My carb tolerance has changed over time. So I would say my carb tolerance was pretty bad when I was 35 and pregnant and I did that gestational diabetes test. And it took a long time for me to get to a place where I've got more wiggle room and I can now eat more fruit. I can eat some potatoes. I can get doses of these things that don't disrupt my glucose and cause vascular damage. So I want people to have a sense of, you know, it's not like you have a life sentence of being low carb for the rest of your life. It's more that you want to improve your metabolic flexibility so that you've got more wiggle room. Hmm. So I think that that point is so important. Yeah. And so well said. And look, you know, at 35, you had less wiggle room than you do today. And a lot of people would argue that it just gets, you just get less and less wiggle room as we get older. And that's just not true. That's not true it's, at all. It's not true. But one of the things that does happen is when your estrogen starts to decline. Mm-hmm. And for most of us, that's around 45. Yeah, it's inevitable. But it can happen yes. sooner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's, and estrogen plays this role with insulin where they, they need to be working together. So when estrogen starts to decline, that can lead to more insulin resistance So if you're not doing anything else and you're relatively normal in terms of metabolic health, what most women notice is that their cortisol rises, their estrogen declines starting around 45. And so they start to redistribute fat. So less at their breasts and their hips and their butt, more at their waist. So there are these kind of metabolic changes that occur that you can see physically. You know, most of us see it I saw it as can't zip my jeans anymore because of this redistribution. So that's something, again, that you can track. You can track your body composition. You can change your exercise regime. You can change your food so that you're working with the system and not just letting time sort of take your body over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I full believer that we can pivot as our body pivots. And I can even, I sometimes see this even earlier as we start to lose that stress resilience due to a precipitous decline in progesterone, obvious. And, you know, that's playing a role there too. 
then estrogen drops and it's like the wheels fall off, you know? And, and so, you know, I say, you know, women, if we can start focusing, like you said, you said 30 to 35, I love that window. You know, that's when I started seeing the signs and I kind of just didn't get the memo until like 36, where I was like, uh oh, you know, I feel like, you know, and in, in a lot of the labs I've looked at and the women I've taken care of is that that 30 to 35 year old window is when things start to shift. You know, just minor shifts, little shifts, things that you're just like, huh, I can't just drink a couple glasses of wine and just do me the next day. You know, all of a sudden I'm starting to notice more symptoms around my period, you know, just those types of things. I don't, I, I'm not able to work out the way that I used to or whatever that may be. I really do feel like that's when your body's kind of telling you that's a kind of a knowing of like, oh, I should start looking at this a little deeper. I should start paying attention to what kind of exercise is working for me? What kind of food is working for me? But then also having measurables and looking at real time to see what really is and isn't working for you. And obviously, get this, book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's such a good point. And I've got younger sisters and I remember them asking me, what can I do? What can I do? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to become a hot mess when I'm in my forties and fifties. And so Doing baseline measurements, if you're in that age range from 30 to 35, I think can be really empowering, even if you're totally normal. Like, that's good to know. It's good to have that base case. But I also want to say it's never too late. So if you're 40, 45, 50, 55, 60 and older, it's never too late to do some of this testing and to adjust your food for your individual metabolism and to start making some of these small changes. I know it may sound like a huge project, but the truth is this comes down to really small baby steps that accumulate and aggregate over time and help you become more metabolically healthy and metabolically flexible. Well, and the alternative, you know, I, I, that's all I'm saying is that the alternative of like when you check in with your why and you check in with your intentions and you check in with who you are wanting to become, you know, and all of that speaks to how your body's functioning, how your metabolism is functioning. And so if ever it does feel like it is a whole lot of work or it is a, it's a process, I mean, I don't know anything worthwhile that isn't a little bit of work. You know, and, and I think that it is baby steps, it's micro steps. And when we can measure these at real time, you, you get that, that feedback in real time um, and, and you can celebrate a lot of big wins along the way. So I say, if ever you're finding yourself like, oh, I don't know how to start, I don't know what to do, I just, I feel like this is gonna be hard, just check in with your why, you know? And, and, and that really, that'll anchor you back to, to wanting to do it. And there's one thing I know about women, man, once we know what to do, and we've got the data, we can execute, we, we can do anything. That is what I know to be true. And there's just so many incredible books. And so I know, Dr. Gottfried, you're this, I love this book. It's literally at my desk all the time. Women, Food and Hormones. It's phenomenal. It, a lot of what we talked about today, you can also find in here, especially the plan, especially like the how to. And also it's coming out in paperback. So if you don't want a hard copy, which I don't know why you wouldn't want a hard copy, but if you don't want a hard copy, you can also get it in paperback pretty soon as well. And I will have the link to where to get this book in the show notes. Love it. Love it. Yeah. You know, there's one other thing you mentioned that I want to circle back to. So you talked about your family history, especially with the men on your Latinx side with the premature heart disease in their fifties. And I have a lot of patients who say to me, 
no, I don't have any family history of heart disease. And yet they'll say, but I do have a lot of Alzheimer's disease. And so I think it's important to realize that we're not just talking about heart attacks. We're not just talking about coronary artery bypass grafts and stents. We're talking about a much broader picture of dysregulation with your blood sugar, issues with your blood pressure like you had in your pregnancy. And then to me, the ultimate is Alzheimer's disease. I've got a fair amount of Alzheimer's disease in my family, and that is also known as type 3 diabetes. It's crucial to understand that so many of the things that we're talking about, really nine out of the top 10 leading causes of death are related to your cardiometabolic health. So even if your risk in your family is breast cancer, if you're like me and you've got some dementia or Alzheimer's in your family, pay attention to this. Start as early as possible. Like that's really what is going to make a difference in terms of your risk. And I love how you connected it to your why and how that's a vision that can pull you forward, especially when some of these things feel more challenging. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you connected the dots to the other bigger inflammatory conditions. I know that we focused today on the cardiometabolic health and, and again, being the number one killer in women and women not being aware of that. I think that that was such an important highlight, but yeah, for some of us, we've already ran our genetics. We know that Alzheimer's is, is in our family, or we know that autoimmunity is in our family, or we know that type two diabetes is in our family. And so I just be looking ahead in all the ways that we can be preventing that for ourselves, because even though it may be in our family, it doesn't need, mean that it needs to be for us. That's right. Yay, Dr. Snyder. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Gottfried. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, My pleasure. What a blessing. Thank you for Thank coming you. on. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks. Whoa. Are you really surprised that women have unique physical cardiometabolic risks? I guess we aren't small men after all. Even beyond healthcare inequalities, women face more significant and in some cases, more fatal cardiometabolic health risks. Although factors like hypertension, smoking, and high cholesterol are the same for both men and women, some such as smoking and diabetes can be more damaging for women. Additionally, women face many unique risk factors that men simply don't, such as those stemming from pregnancy, menopause, caretaking, and oral contraceptive use, meaning the pill. These are unique to us. But as we talked about today, there is a lot of good news. Knowledge is power. And now that you know this, there's something that we can do about it. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. This past year, I have been devoted to cardio metabolic driven information, definitely metabolic information, because at the end of the day, our metabolism is tied to our cardiovascular system and our brain health as well. And what we know about this, as we talked about today, is cardiometabolic driven health issues are often reversible. And there's a lot that we can do as individuals to mitigate these effects and lessen the risks overall. Now, in her latest research paper, Dr. Godfrey details a ton of lifestyle changes like nutrition, supporting the gut microbiome, hormone therapy that can truly improve women's cardiometabolic health. And if you haven't checked it out already, her book, Women, Food, and Hormones, does a great job of laying out exactly what we need to do. Now, I'm going to have the link in the show notes because I believe the book is going to go to paperback pretty soon. Now, if you are feeling like you would love a metabolic reset, a gentle yet effective metabolic reset that will greatly support your cardiovascular health as a side benefit, 
I want you to know that I'm opening the doors to my live group detox, my 14 day detox. It's just 14 days with epic support to boot. The group is gonna kick off in early January. This is gonna be the first time we've ever kicked off a group in January, so I'm super excited about this. I feel like it's the best time to do it. And I'm gonna be announcing details in December in less than a month, literally in like three weeks. I'm gonna be giving you all the details. The doors will be open to sign up. You are gonna be good to go. But if you wanna go and check out the detox now, just to learn a little bit more about it, you can go to drmarisa.com slash detox. I'm gonna have the link in the show notes. And when I am personally thinking about my own metabolic health and my own cardiometabolic health, given the extended history of heart disease in my family, I'm always wondering like what, where is the juice worth the squeeze, right? And that's one of the biggest reasons why I created this detox and one of the reasons why I have done it over and over and over again over the last, I wanna say four years now, is because it is powerful, it works, and it literally, it reverses time, it reverses chronic inflammation, who you are on day one is not who you are on day 14. You are a completely different person. And that's why so many people do it for another, gosh, another seven, another 14 days, because when you get to that day 14, you feel so incredible. You feel so light. You feel so clear, so focused. You feel so, like again, your body feels different and you want more of that. And that's what I want so much for you. I want you to have more of that. So I hope that you consider joining me when we open the doors in December to kick off in early January. Yep, we're gonna get you through the holidays first, then kick off. I'm gonna be doing it, my husband's gonna be doing it, my whole family's doing it. I got. I have a, a group of like 30 people joining us uh, and I hope that you join us too. Thank you so much for listening in on the show today. If you are loving the tips, if you're loving the guests, please subscribe. Leave a review, let me know what you think, and also share this episode with someone that you love, someone that you know needs to hear this information. Screenshot it, text it on over to them, make it easy. And again, I'm excited for you with the next episode. Until then, have an amazing day.